I said to the universe, like, hey, when I figure it out, I'm going to tell the world. Like, this is my, I have a lot of spiritual missions. This is one of them. And that's what I've been doing. Hi, I'm Zoe. Hi, I'm Erica. Hey, Erica. This is our podcast. What do we do on the podcast? Uh, We talk to wellness experts. What do we talk about? Mm, Wellness stuff. And why are we doing this? Because we want to have an inclusive conversation about things that you can actually use and apply to your life. Right. We don't think that wellness should feel preachy. We think it should feel like everybody can participate. That's right. So if you like what you hear, tell a friend. Give us five stars. They're all free. All of the above. All of the above. And think of us as your navigators on the bumpy highway to well. Knock, knock. Who's there? Sibo. Sibo who? I don't know, actually. I didn't have a punchline. (laughs) I thought maybe you could come up with something. Oh, I was not prepared for that. So we just did a little shite talking. We did. We talked poop. We did. Very common problem. A lot of people have it. Sibo. It stands for uh, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, which uh, it masquerades as a lot of different things. So the long and short of it is if you have a tummy ache or not, if you have other shit going on, it's very possible that you have SIBO. You just don't know you have it. And Siobhan Sarna, who has literally written the book on it called Healing SIBO, the 21 day plan to banish bloat, fix your gut and balance your weight is here to tell us. Yeah. She had a really tough time. Um, But anyway, so You'll, you're going to learn all about it, but SIBO is so easy to get tested for. It's just a breath test. So don't let anyone talk you out of doing it. This is the PSA part. Yeah. If you even suspect like this much that you might have it. Okay. Now I guess we should just listen to, uh, to the actual story and <laughs> not us because we're just... Because we're not as interesting as uh, Siobhan and her wealth of knowledge on all things bacterial intestinal overgrowth. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right, have a listen and enjoy. Hey guys. So you may have figured out by now that Zoe and I are huge fans of functional mushrooms. And that's because their benefits are legit from increasing focus and concentration to helping you sleep. And probably most importantly, providing incredible support for your immune system. And yes, that is actual science. You can check it out on our blog at earthandstar.com. But who doesn't need a little bit of extra immune support right now, if we're being honest? But anyway, the most important thing for you to know, actually, is that you have to have these fabulous fungi in your system every day in order to reap the benefits. So Earth and Star our new brand, is making it as easy as possible for you to get the amazing benefits of functional mushrooms every day. Like if you've got a serious cold brew habit, there's a can for that. If you love your afternoon matcha latte, then we've got you covered there. And if you're not like G-Love and you're not feeling the cold beverages, then how about a totally delicious dark chocolate bar that also helps you increase focus and concentration while satisfying your sweet tooth. And it pairs super well with red wine. So we at Earth and Star have created as many ways as possible to help you elevate your everyday routine because we are not asking you to add another pill or a powder to your very busy schedule of supplements. We just want it to be as easy and absolutely delicious as possible for you to get some mush love into your life. So check us out at earthandstar.com and get 15% off your first order with the code HTW. 
Okay, well, we're here and we can officially start because um, I know everybody's eager to talk about their bacteria and their gut. And their- You've never seen someone more excited to talk about GERD than me. It's, that is true. I can attest to that. Okay, so just so you know, the relationship is not like a strict correlation between GERD and SIBO. Right. Okay. And you know, I have to fix the bank if I have to pull glasses. And then also, I'm a patient advocate and like investigative journalist, not a doctor or clinician. So I just want to be clear about that. Yeah, for sure. Cool. All right. Well, now that we have all the disclaimers out of the way and the bangs are sorted, please tell us your incredible story. Well, you're very kind to have me. Thank you so much. I am very excited to talk about constipation and diarrhea. Thank you. (laughs) And what happened was, is I was a little girl at say, let's say four or five. And my mom asked me if I was going all the time. And I, that was like my first experience with like shame around pooping. It didn't get much worse than that, but it was definitely like at four or five, I'm like, well, that is none of your beeswax. So that's kind of weird. (laughs) I was like, who says that as a little kid? My father's Indian. So his knowledge of Ayurveda and, you know, just like you should be going a lot and often he noticed that I wasn't. And I had gone to India with them on a buying trip and got food poisoning. Then I came back and went to upstate New York and got food poisoning from milking a cow on a field trip and drinking the milk right there and not pasteurized, just like having at it and got really sick. And um, it turns out, fast forward all these years, I have post-infectious IBS, which is basically SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, which we will dive into big time. And also um, what it really meant for me was a lot of bloating, a lot of constipation, a lot of me looking at my skinny body and poofy belly going, huh. And then I finally had a girlfriend tell me about this random antibiotic she was taking. She and I were both the weird ones at HSN, this television station where we work. And because we were gluten-free, we were the weirdos and I was used to it. So whatever. And um, I it just couldn't, couldn't leave my psyche. I kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And I called her, I'm like, that I did this breath test. It's this intense antibiotic. Um, I have something called SIBO. And I'm like, so anyway, I, at that point, I was just being a digestive detective and just trying to figure out whatever was wrong with me. I would take any test to see if I could get a diagnosis. I had like three colonoscopies in six years. Not necessary, not necessary whatsoever. It was just my doctor had mercy on me because I was like crying in his office. Yes. And I was... Pretty sure I had cancer. Thank God I didn't, but I wanted a diagnosis. We always go to that very quickly, don't we? Did, uh, did Just to clarify, like your symptoms when you were having these issues and first started noticing them, it was like gas. Like what, what exactly were they? It was bloating for me, mainly bloating. And then sometimes diarrhea, sometimes constipation, then more often constipation, but mainly bloating, like yes, six you know- months pregnant. Like right after you ate, or like when would you notice it the most? All the time. Like I was into tunics in high school. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, that's my question. So you experienced these these um, symptoms starting from the age of like five or six, or whenever you got yeah, food poisoning, yeah, and, and literally five. never without a break. 
never without a break. I mean, in college, it was a little bit better. I used to still always going to be self-conscious about my tummy because it was always a little bit bloated. I would say it was cyclical, but it was, it's been with me in some form or another um, all my, you know, my life since five. But what happened was I was working in a building that was moldy. And for 20 years, my cup just sort of must've filled up towards the last, you know, 15 to 20 years. And so I had a lot of, um, a lot of stuff rear its ugly head, like my Lyme infection, uh, Epstein-Barr virus, all of the mold toxins. And certainly it really wouldn't, you know, wasn't helping me resolve SIBO. Even when I finally figured out what SIBO was, small intestine bacterial overgrowth and the treatments to deal with it. So so not in that building anymore, doing great managing it. It's a beautiful thing and you can cure it. It just depends on your underlying cause. Wow. So hold on. That's a lot of, lot of Honey, stuff. I know it. You're like a mixed bag of just all sorts of good stuff. So you, you like, what was the timeline you had? Like, when did you discover Lyme? When did you like it just... Only past five years. So I, I would have been the person and I was the person that said, oh, I don't have Lyme. Like I didn't ever have a bullseye. I totally was in denial about the possibility of having Lyme. But when I really sat around and thought about it, I was the only girl that summer at summer camp in North Carolina who had the flu in the middle of the summer. And, you know, I would say like I had a weak constitution growing up. Like I wasn't like the strongest person. I didn't always feel well. I didn't feel horrible. The mold really put me over the edge. And then so in the past couple of years, I've discovered that I have all these antibodies to those conditions. So I call it old Lyme and old EBV. Epstein-Barr virus. But so were they, so it, it just, it was just like a bad, bad hand that you were dealt that you also became that, I mean, obviously mold is, is, is its own thing just completely on, you know, by itself, but Lyme and Epstein-Barr, like those aren't, you know, the, it, you have to work pretty hard to get all of these things at once. I, I think I already had them. I think I'm actually really healthy and I was able to overcome them pretty organically and then the mold just became uh, overwhelming combined with a lot of stress. And, it's a, and, and I think my cup runneth over. Yeah. And that was actually the case with um, someone we interviewed uh, a while back who had Lyme. And he also realized what it was when he was in uh, an apartment and there was mold and it was like a light switch and it just knocked him on his ass. And he was like, what is going on here? And he figured out that there was mold in the apartment and then it triggered his, uh, his Lyme that he didn't, you know, he didn't know he had. Right. So, oh, it's so crazy. Um, but anyway, okay. So I just wanted to sort of like get the chronology there, but as you were. <laughs> well, you're so, you're, you're, you're so right when you're saying no one's talking about this SIBO and this conversation that needs to be had because I, you know, had a computer and Google and time on my hands and great insurance. And I couldn't figure out what it was. I didn't even know it existed until about five years ago when I was talking to that girlfriend. And then I went and had a SIBO breath test and it was mis, uh, misinterpreted. So I lost 18 months with a false negative. <sighs> and yeah, that was a great one. And um, it's just been a huge health journey in the past five years, figuring all these co-infections out. But Really, the primary thing that I want people to know about is SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, which really is IBS. So there are a lot of underlying causes for it. 
but the the big discovery recently has been it is associated with food poisoning. So of all the people that get food poisoning, about 10% of them are going to get post-infectious IBS, mm-hmm. which IBS is SIBO, SIBO is IBS. Can I just take a second and just define what SIBO is? Uh, yeah. So it's it's small intestine bacterial overgrowth. So when the microbiome of the large intestine, which is, you know, hopefully this incredible, diverse, wonderful thing that's really running the show, so to speak. And some of that gets in the small intestine and isn't swept out. That bacteria can overgrow, literally, and it becomes like a microbrewery. And that's where the bloating comes from because they're ex- these bacteria, these organisms are excreting hydrogen or hydrogen sulfide or methane. That's the gas. And it's also leading to malnutrition because, you know, the small intestines where we're getting our food absorbed into the body. It can lead to some weird other things like rosacea, restless leg syndrome. And so, you know, if you have like this constellation of what feels like unrelated symptoms, a lot of times it is SIBO, but SIBO is caused by something else and then causes other things. So the other things that it could be caused by are you know, food poisoning, like I said, and I'll explain that, how that works and how you can test for it. Endometriosis, where the tissue can actually pull some of the intestine out of its usual placement and um, adhesions from like belly surgery, getting kicked in the belly by a horse, falls, traumatic brain injuries, which do not mean you have a concussion and you don't have to be bleeding from the ear. It could just be like a clunk on the head um, and then impacting your vagus nerve antibiotic use, opioid use, even from like one dental surgery, um, deep anesthesia, alcoholism. I'm trying to think of some other juicy underlying causes. Um, That's a lot of them, but as scleroderma is more serious, of course. Um, But what happens is all of those conditions in one way or another can impact the MMC, baby. It's the migrating motor complex, which is the sweeping motion. After peristalsis has all been done in the intestines, it's the sweeping motion of the last bit of bacteria and food out of the small intestine. And when that doesn't get swept out, the bacteria can overgrow, leading to SIBO. So this is so interesting to me because, and I know I know we're not here to talk about GERD. But it's such a good topic too. Let's do it. But it's, but it's, um, but it's there's like all these parallels, right? So when I think about, well, like for people who don't know, peristalsis is that sort of like, it's the contraction that, that, that basically like pushes your poop out, right? It's that muscle. Right. And when I think about like, the, you know, bacterial overgrowth, um, whether it's like SIBO or GERD or whatever it is, it's like, uh, and you know, the, the, the link to like, whatever, low stomach acid, et cetera. We, you know, we can talk about that maybe later, but isn't at some point, it's kind of like a mechanical issue, right? So you're saying that last bit doesn't get swept out, right? So then it's, do you it, do, I guess in this case with SIBO, like to what extent can you point a finger at the lower esophageal, esophageal sphincter as a valve? Like, is there, a, is there yes. that not working properly either? So that's a great, great question. The way that, I, and I used to have GERD, I was on uh, Prilosec, for seven years. Oh, um, 
Yeah. Was, and you guys just, I know, I mean, it's probably familiar to most people, but will you just de- define sorry. the acronym of GERD for, for listeners who don't know? It's like gastroesophageal yeah. esophageal reflux disorder. Yes. And no, winner. Winner, winner. Yeah, yeah. Think heartburn. Okay, think heartburn. Right. That's what I think of when I think of GERD. So let's say in terms of valves, the gas in your small intestine is expanding. And because you have SIBO and because you have methane or hydrogen sulfide or hydrogen, and it does put pressure and can pop open, oversimplifying it, of course, the lower esophageal sphincter, also known as LES. And when that opens up, you can have GERD. So that is absolutely part of the um, mechanic of how GERD and SIBO could be related. Yeah. It's so, yeah, the whole, um, I think, whatever, not to get off topic, but it's just, it's so funny how we, and I can't believe you're on Prilosex for, for seven years. I would love to hear how you came off of that and what that rebound effect was. But yeah, and, and how, like where that kind of played into your whole timeline. It was before I really was dealing with the SIBO, but it was like cuspy right beforehand. And I read this, you know, I listened to Chris Presser and read his blog posts about hydrochloric acid. And did you read his, um, his ebook on GERD? <laughs> I basically did. Yeah. I love Chris. Like he's so rad and he's got a ton of free ebooks, everybody, in case you want to download some. Do it. So, so because I was in so much pain, I had pre Barrett's, which is pre cancerous esophagus, pre pre. Uh, yeah, that's it was pre. But still, it was scaring me. So what I want to tell you what I did because it was quite miraculous. So I did the hydrochloric acid, you know, protocol for GERD. And you guys can go look it up online. Um, Chris Crusser has it. A, a couple of other people have it out there. And I is where you take hydrochloric acid and it's supposed to make your GERD go away. Okay. So I did it the first time at night before I went to sleep and it absolutely did not work. It made me feel terrible. But I kept reading about it and I was totally convinced somehow intuitively that this was going to work. And then I abandoned all hope, but I still did it. So then I did it a second time, didn't work. I did it about three weeks later, a third time and it absolutely worked. I never had to take another purple pill again, ever. So what happened? I mean, I have no idea. I must have conified something. It made my lower esophageal sphincter like go back into place and stay there. And I've never had GERD since. And it was a miracle. Do, do you think it was just basically bringing your your stomach acid levels back to normal? I mean, it was just increasing your stomach acid. Yeah, basically. That's what I, that's what I think. I'm, I'm not really positive because I'm not a GERD expert. Uh, if I had spent as much time diving into the rabbit hole of GERD as I have SIBO, I would be, but I'm not. And this is the medical advice, of course. Talk to your physicians, everybody. But that's what worked for me. Right. Well, and to that point, I guess that's where I was going with it was because you mentioned Prilosec, which obviously, you know, it's very easy to get. It's over the counter. It's Prilosec OTC. And I've had this conversation separately having to do with ulcers, which I experienced. We've got so many very cool gastroenterological issues in this little family here. 
called H. pylori if you want. Uh, yeah. So, and I did not have that bacteria. I had a very mysterious ulcer that appeared and exploded and it was horrible, but but I was on Prilosec after because I was, again, balancing the acid. And my doctor was actually pretty adamant about not wanting me to stay on it, which was pretty forward thinking for the general Western medical community. And I I guess I want to take this opportunity as a little PSA for people because there are so many people who are on it just like for forever. And they're like, oh yeah, I just take this every day. You know, it helps. And my doctor said I should just like stay on it in perpetuity. And I'm like, no, 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 no. There are just, there are studies and there are things that you need to know and you have to find a way to wean yourself off of it, whether it's slowly tapering off or whether it's doing something like what you're just suggesting, uh, you know, some sort of a protocol. But one way or another, I feel like people really need to understand that even though you can buy it and therefore take it as long as you want, you really, really should not. Yeah. So just to add on that, we want to go full PSA. I mean, when PPIs, like when, when acid reducing medications first came out, it was um, under the advisement that they, people should not be on them for more than six weeks. That was the original direction from the drug makers. And so, and doctor, and it, and it just, it turned into this huge industry where it's like, you know, pharmaceutical companies make billions of dollars every year just selling this one medication. So it's like, they are handing it out like candy and people are on them for decades. Decades. Leads to all these other problems because you have like, bacterial overgrowth in your stomach, which leads to a million other problems, like the list that you rattled off before, like you'd be surprised the places we can go. Yeah, Yeah. it's insane. So anyway, so back to your journey. Back to my journey. Uh, But, you know, one other thing I want to just talk about that is journey related is that I didn't remember this until I like went to a college reunion and my girlfriend was like, so how's your stomach? I'm like, what? You were always carrying Maalox around with you. Like, I didn't even remember because I had normalized it. Wow. So if I had had a purple pill back then, I probably would have taken it. So which, which would have meant that like my GERD was with me for much, much longer than the seven years I was actually treating it. But if you are like toting around a lot of, you know, Tums, you, you put, you know, baking soda in your water just to take the edge off and you love to, um, you know, swing some mailbox every now and then. You got to make sure it's in your car, in your purse, and by your bed, and in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. That could be a sign you need to figure something out about that. Okay. <laughs> Don't normalize it is what I'm trying to say. So basically what happened was I, five years ago, was in this situation of feeling really bad and wondering like if I had cancer and I was pretty sure like I couldn't go on like this much longer. It wasn't sustainable, panicking, food allergy tests, food sensitivity tests. I was like the test queen, anything I could possibly get my hands on through any functional practitioner. And I didn't live near a bunch of them, uh, you know, but I would take what I could get. And, you know, it all came back like, yes, you're highly sensitive to the three foods you're eating and uh, nothing really was telling me anything. And uh, then I heard about the SIBO breath test. I did it. No results. Um, it was a wrong result. And one of my other girlfriends, this is why we need to talk to our girlfriends because they have great ideas, was like, hey, I just went to this great gastroenterologist and he spent an hour with me and he fixed my GERD. 
And I was like, an hour, what? You spent an hour with a doctor? That's amazing. She's like, yeah, I'll, I'll get you in. Thank God she got me in. And so I went to this gastroenterologist, Dr. Michael Schulman in Largo, Florida, and he spent two hours with me, which is like a freaking miracle also. And I call him my digestion detective. And he wanted to see the results of that SIBO breath test. It comes in a graph and he wanted to see the paper. So I actually went to the other doctor's office through the nurse and all that and got the copy of the paper. And that's where we saw the word positive scratched out, written negative. So we saw that it was interpreted improperly. I did another SIBO breath test and I was definitely positive. And he gave me the typical treatment and it didn't totally work. And I was confused because in SIBO, you have to often do multiple rounds of treatment to reduce the bacterial load. And I was used to, here's an antibiotic, take it for 10 days, you'll be well. So I was super confused and very sad and frustrated. And I was like, what? I don't have this. I finally had a diagnosis and I don't have it. And I figured I didn't have it because the antibiotics didn't work. But actually I did have it, have it. I just needed to do another round, which is highly unusual in the world of antibiotics, but it is. Anyway, I started um, also doing remote with Dr. Allison Seebecker. She finally opened up her schedule, world-renowned SIBO expert. And I told her that I wanted to do a SIBO summit, which are these online summits which I now have done like five of the SIBO SOS Summit 1 and 2 and the IBS and SIBO SOS Summit and the Microbiome Rescue Summit. What they are is they're our interviews um, that you can see for free. And then if people want to buy it, great. If not, you've had this free viewing. And she said to me, uh, not only do I want to be on it, I want to help you. And she introduced me to her colleagues and that's how it all sort of cascaded from there. And that's eventually how I wrote the book, Healing SIBO. Because in my brain, I'd wanted to write a book, but I'm not originally a writer. I'm more of a TV person. And so doing a summit, which I was already a huge fan of, um, being a summit customer myself, um, the summit just was, in quotes, easier for me. So that's how we got here. So, okay. So the million dollar question is, how do we heal SIBO? We nail SIBO by getting a SIBO breath test when there are labs called aerodiagnostics. And you can do the test at home. Um, there's also a lab called uh, Gemelli, and it has a breath test that is called TrioSmart. Um, if you, aerodiagnostics, you just call and ask for the, get your doctor to get a SIBO breath test. At Gemelli, they also only have one breath test, but theirs tests for three of the gases, which is a new development and pretty exciting. So you can find out if you have the hydrogen, the methane, or the hydrogen sulfide dominant. And the reason that's important is because the treatment is going to vary based on the gas you have. And there are three treatments and one is super intense, but the most effective, and it's called the elemental diet, which is you being on a liquid diet for 14 to 17 days. And at the end, retesting to see how your bacterial load is doing. It used to taste like vomit. I'm not kidding. It was amino acids that uh, were for feeding tubes and you would drink only this for 14 to 17 days. It was disgusting. Yeah, so of course no one wanted to do it because who wants a liquid diet and who wants one that tastes like vomit? However, there are companies like Dr. Michael Ruscio and Integrative Therapeutics and a couple more brands that have gone out and made tasty ones that basically taste like super sweet milkshakes, which is fine. They're not like my favorite. They're not terrible. It's so much better by comparison. That is the most effective way to eradicate the bacteria. 
because it is starving the bacteria in the small intestine because it's feeding you because it gets absorbed so quickly because it's basically pre-digested, right? It's amino acids. And um, then the bacteria have nothing to feed on. So that's called the elemental diet. And then there are two other options. One is herbal antibiotics that have actually been studied compared to the pharmaceutical antibiotics. And they were seen to be slightly more effective, which I always love. However, it takes a month instead of two weeks. But you can kind of DIY it, although I do suggest you have a doctor help you because it's a complicated condition. But that's sometimes more affordable if your insurance doesn't work out for the more intense pharmaceutical. And those are things like candybactin AR and BR, which are herbal formulations, combinations, uh, oregano oil, oil yeah, oregano, right? Alimed, which is allicin, which is the active ingredient in garlic. There are a whole bunch of combinations you can do that have been studied and have a lot of clinical support. And that's usually about a month. Okay. The third, and this is not, these are not in order of importance, um, is Zyfaxin, which is the antibiotic Rifaximin. And it's actually the drug that they give uh, for traveler's diarrhea. And you take it for two weeks, three times a day. And if you have the methane producers, you combine it with neomycin. And what's so interesting about Rifaximin Flush of Zyfaxin is that it stays in the small intestine. So it doesn't nuke your entire microbiome, which is great. And it's fairly safe for multiple rounds without becoming resistant to it. So Dr. Mark Pimentel is the one who figured out the elemental diet for SIBO and these uh, these drugs, the pharmaceuticals. He's the one who runs, not runs Gemelli Labs, but he's created the tests for the Trio Smart breath test. And also he has, he's the one who developed the blood test to see if you have post-infectious IBS, wash SIBO from food poisoning. And that's called the IBS smart test, which is really cool because usually IBS is a diagnosis of exclusion. Like you don't have a tumor, you don't have ovarian cancer, you don't have Crohn's or I, you know, IBD. So, so you must have IBS. Yeah, so right. It becomes exactly. like a catch-all. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but so I guess part of this is, I mean, I think the piece of it that it feels like it's the most important, I guess, to sort of overstress is that these types, this whole, I mean, this whole kind of world of SIBO and IBS really present in so many different ways that it's really difficult for people to even realize that they have it, right? Which kind of allows it to just take over and spend so much more time in your system than something that just seems very obvious. Like if you have, you know, this type of bump or if you have this type of rash or if you're, you know, have whatever it is, blood, whatever. Yeah, I call Um, it the ingrown toenail effect. Yeah, right. So how are people supposed to... Yeah, decide if they even should get tested kind of thing? Yeah. Well, there are a couple of things. If you've had food poisoning recently or you remember that you had it a long time ago and you just weren't the same afterwards, that's a pretty good sign. Um, like the acute episode finished, but you feel like you still haven't just been right since. But if you have bloating, if you have fatigue, if you have a blood test and you have weird B12 or anemic uh, iron levels, if you have this this constellation of symptoms and... Uh, when you eat, you bloat. When you have that apple a day, you feel worse. When you eat onions or garlic or certain carbs, you feel worse, which is why so many people think they have food sensitivities when in actuality, the SIBO is reacting, the bacteria is reacting to those particular carbohydrates, which is their food 
if you have that lift, then you might want to go ahead and get tested for SIBO. And if like any of this sounds familiar, uh, the other thing is to your point about it can kind of take over and be like this whole like laundry list of deterioration, this feeling of, oh, I'm just getting older. They're like, oh, I'm, you know, I just have food sensitivities. I just have, you know, it's easy to, again, like I just write it off. It also does mimic candida and Mm -hmm. it mimics parasites. So if you have all of this and you go and you get a SIBO breath test and it is done properly and, you know, they knew what they were doing and you did the prep properly and it's a negative, please explore parasites and please explore candida for yourselves because those could be some of the, you know, parallel universes of the same set of symptoms. Yeah. And so then when you bring up the carbohydrate piece and onions and garlic, to me, that registers like FODMAP issues, which I think has been talked about in, you know, super like kind of deep dive wellness circles. But for the general public, a lot of people don't know what FODMAP issues are, what FODMAPs are. Um, So can you talk a little bit about that piece of it and how the two kind of relate and then diverge? Absolutely. So if you have IBS, typically you are told to eat a low FODMAP diet. And the F, the O, the D, the M, the A, the P all stand for different types of carbohydrates and sugars. And, you know, if you have IBS, like I was told that, and I was like, I can do something about it. And I ate low FODMAP for a really long time and was very strict about it. And it does help, does help. The thing is, is that diet changes do help with SIBO and IBS. Um, but it, the, the criticism of that is that you reduce your diversity and that it can impact your microbiome. It treats your symptoms. The diet treats your symptoms. It does not treat the underlying cause. And there are a lot of really smart people who are incredible foodies and cooks and chefs and recipe developers who have spent a lot of time in the FODMAP world, to your point. And what they're not, many of them, I want to be, you know, too blanket here, but many of them are not talking about the fact that it could be caused from food poisoning and that they, a lot of people should be investigating whether or not they have SIBO. So what's crushing me is as an advocate is that people think all they can do is eat low FODMAP if they have IBS and maybe Mm -hmm. take some peppermint pills. And it irritates the crap out of me, thank you, because you could actually do one of those three treatments and perhaps resolve your situation. Now, if you have adhesions, you know, some, you know, uh, visceral manipulation can work. If you have, um, you know, a couple of other different medical conditions, you may always have SIBO, but you can still manage it by doing pulses of those three treatments I mentioned. Mm -hmm. So for people that are just thinking FODMAP, I think it's a big disservice, honestly, to the the patient population. I miss a lot of food and thank goodness they're making all those recipes and stuff because now I can have banana bread and carrot cake and all these other wonderful things because they've tailored those foods to be low FODMAP. But why? Why are you having those conditions is what was driving me to keep asking that question. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like the same thing with all of these issues, it's like, sure, we can tweak our diet. And it's so limiting too, when you talk about like anything having to do with like a gastroenteritis problem, it's just like, oh my gosh, no. It's like, I, I, 
my favorite foods are literally the list of do not go near these foods. Like, oh, coffee, red wine, chocolate. Um, Onions, garlic, cauliflower. Yeah, pizza. Literally everything, right? So like, yes, to your point, I think it, it's so um, crucial to to address the underlying issue. And again, you might not like totally resolve it. And it's also so confusing. So I had a friend actually who recently she was just like so bloated for months and months and months, like six months. She'd lost like 20 pounds. She couldn't get to the bottom of it. She's actually in the medical field and, you know, she's pretty savvy, super smart. And she's like, what the hell is going on with me? Like, do I have IBS? Like, this is crazy. Uh, she was also a vegetarian. She, uh, she reached out and was like, what do you think this is? Like, my doctor wants to take out my gallbladder. Like, uh-huh. they think it's like a gallbladder issue, right? And I was like, oh my God, don't do it. Let, let me, I was like, that's not what it is. So clearly, like she was going through basically all the, all the boxes that you need to check to like really okay. sign off on like, this is absolutely a gallbladder issue. And she wasn't even checking like 75% of them. And they were still like, let's just take out your gallbladder. You don't need it. This is, I swear to God. I swear I want to cuss right now. Right? Doesn't, You're allowed. Thank so, you. This was going on for months and months and months. And finally I was like, but anyway, so reached out to this doctor and he very kindly suggested like, you know, it could be this, it could be this, but maybe first and foremost, like check for a parasite, check for a parasite, right? Like scrape your anus, get in there, see if anything is there. And then it's like, maybe you wipe that out with a antibiotic, whatever. So it wasn't that. Months later, it was like a throwaway comment. It was sort of like a last dish, like, oh, hey, why don't you do this like breath test for SIBO? She had SIBO. Right. Did you just set, call your an- anus in a French way on us? I said anus. Yes. <laughs> so much better that way. <laughs> Did you know Nigella, Nigella Lawson uh, was on a cooking show that she was doing and she called her microwave a microwave? <laughs> <laughs> oh, like you said it much more French and more beautifully. So like Twitter went crazy. Like, is that how you pronounce? Anyway. Um, anyway, so just... Was she positive for... So she was positive for SIBO. She was positive for SIBO. All that to say, why didn't anyone in her medical circle say, this is a simple breath test. It's very clearly an intestinal problem. It's a bacterial... Couldn't be more obvious, but they're like, ah, let's take out your gallbladder. Like, it's just so insane to me how you really have to be your own advocate and you have to like get all the advice you possibly can, gather up all the opinions from every person under the sun, explore every possibility before. That's what I did. Yeah. I literally talked to hundreds of doctors. I mean, the summit ended up educating me of my own case, of course, brilliantly. I found out I have mild Ehlers-Danlos, which is a collagen condition that leads to laxity. Um, I mean, it it was great because like, I had all this, you know, medical information, not certainly treating my personal case, but I was able to to really dig deep in some conditions that I didn't know existed, including my Lyme and my mold, which I was previously in total denial about. But I want to talk about the parasite thing for a second, because most parasite tests are horrible and not sensitive. And so there is a person out, a doctor out in Colorado, and he has an interesting setup. Have you heard of para wellness labs? actually not a lab. It's a research project, 
but you pay a, a normal like lab fee. I mean, it's a couple hundred bucks. So it's not nothing. But you can send a stool sample in. And he was a parasitologist in the military. And he will go through and look at the slides, like a thousand different images. And if you have something, he basically will find it. Whereas if you go to Core or uh, LabCorp or um, Quest, if you do a stool test and you come back positive for that parasite, you definitely have one. But if you come back negative, it doesn't mean it's not positive. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. That's a really good point. Um, yeah, it, 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 and like, how do these things even happen in the first place? If you live in Portland, Oregon, apparently there's crypto in the water there. Yeah, it from meat, meat that you eat. It could uh, be from swimming in the lake at summer camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's so crazy. So like, given how unbelievably easy it is to sort of like quote unquote contract one of these issues. Should it just be like standard? Maybe this is just like an annual test that we should automatically give ourselves. Like, why not? Like, what does it cost you to say, hey, like, even if, you know, the list that you rattled off earlier that I would say 90% of the population would shake their head and say, oh yeah, I identify with all of that. Like, these foods upset me. I feel kind of gassy. I'm a little bloat. Like, this this is... So unbelievably comp, like, why wouldn't we just check for that routinely? Is it super expensive to get a SIBO breath test? Oh, no, it's not super expensive. Insurance pays for some of them. Medicare pays for it sometimes. Um, I think out of pocket, I'm not, I don't work for aerodiagnostic labs, so please don't quote me as an employee, but I think it, the most a patient can pay cash is 175-ish. So, you know, it's not free, but it's super valuable information. And it's something that is like a, it's a lifestyle drainer at the very least, um, not to mention the medical implications. Yeah. But there's, there's something else that I just want to address is that let's say you do get the breath test. It's positive. You do the treatments. It's resolved. You retest, which is really important to see how if the treatment works and if you're on the right track. There's something that you do afterwards, and it's called a prokinetic. And a prokinetic is something that moves the migrating motor complex. And that is a couple of pharmaceutical drugs. Um, one is called Motegrity. One is called um, Zelnorm. It's not Zelnorm, it's Tegacerod. It has a new name now. I'll, I'll try to figure it out. I have it over there. And um, there are also natural ones like Ginger. Modal Pro is a combo. It has a lot of ginger in it. Um, so you can do natural things or you have pharmaceutical ones, but it does, it's not a laxative. It does move the migrating motor complex though, so that that underlying cause of the migrating motor complex not working actually works and it can help prevent relapse for SIBO. And so SIBO has a sort of notorious um, reputation for having relapses all the time. And therefore people say, oh, the treatment doesn't work. In actuality, I think the treatment does work, but people don't do the prokinetic to make sure that their migrating motor complex continues to move or actually starts moving. But so, that prokinetic, you can only do after. Like that's not something that people should do thinking that like that's going to address the issue just because things are now moving through, right? So I asked uh, Dr. Pimentel that once and he said, theoretically, it could if you did just the prokinetic, but he didn't really see that clinically working. So, so you know, I don't, I don't think it would hurt, but I don't, it's not going to, 
probably resolve it because those little bacterial bastards really want to live in your small intestine and not leave. What's just amazing to me is that there's so much information. There are so many, I mean, to Zoe's point, like there are so many of us that are impacted by this that we probably should just be testing for it regularly, you know, yearly, whatever you want to call it, because it is so easy to, to contract and to be exposed to these things. But it just really, it just blows my mind that, you know, I feel like this information is really only coming to light in the last, you know, now in the last few years. And like, what did people do for generations, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 20 years ago? Like they just got used to living uncomfortably, chalking it up to, you know, something very kind of like just blanket and taking a pill for it. And I mean, to think about what the long-term ramifications are, like, because I feel like there's probably some camp of skeptics and cynics that say, you know, in the same in the same way that they kind of criticize like the gluten-free movement and say like, you know, we've been eating bread for thousands of years. Like, why is everybody all of a sudden now got gluten problems? Like, there's actually a really good explanation for that having to do in part with the actual quality of our bread. So in the same vein, I feel like there are people that will say, well, you know, why do we have to do all, like people just should get over it. Like, you know, we've been feeling bad for however long. So like, we don't need to all just like, kind of candy coat this and, and, you know, and, and pander to these micro issues. And, and again, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. But. Sure. I would say that person doesn't have SIBO and um, therefore they should just mind their own beeswax. <laughs> or they have it and they've just decided, like they've just gotten accustomed to feeling bad and don't bother to actually like peel back one layer. Absolutely. Like, why do people smoke? So, I mean, you know, some people can just choose to be that way and I don't have time for that. So I'm with you 100%. Yes, it hasn't emerged. There are still physicians that say they don't quote unquote believe in it, which is hysterical, literally hysterical. And um, the science is there. Cedars-Sinai, the MAST program that Dr. Mark Pimentel is heading along with Dr. Ali Razai. I mean, these are brilliant, brilliant doctors that are um, finally getting funding. I'm sure they need more. Um, but IBD Crohn's was, has really gotten the vast majority of digestive funding and it is a devastating disease. So I'm, I'm glad they've gotten support. But IBS and SIBO have not, uh, but it is starting to happen. Um, and so it's good news. I think Mark Pimentel will probably find a cure in our lifetime but I don't know what it is yet. He's going to be at Digestive Disease Week, which is the biggest uh, gastroenterology conference in May. And I do have an interview with him in June. So I'm very excited to hear what he has to say, but they're, they're constantly working on it now. Yeah. Is there um, one, is, are, are men or women, I feel like this is always a conversation that I have with women. So is it because women are just generally more inclined to do the research and be their own guinea pig? Or is, it, or is there more of a predisposition for women to have this? It does appear that women tend to have it more, but there is not, they don't know why. They don't know why. It could be your, their anatomy. It could be hormones. Uh, there's, a, there's not a real like, oh, women have it more because that, that hasn't been really figured out yet. We know but, the answer. It's because we deserve it. Because <laughs> okay. we're special. Uh, I, I guess the other thing that we're, we're, I'm so glad we're having this conversation because people actually don't talk about poop that much. Um, other, you know, than the usual like eight-year-old jokes or whatever. 
Um, and we did a whole episode on it. So, you know, you're in good company. Yeah, I'm in good company. So I actually went to a nail tech, Lisa, for three years before we started to talk about it. And she had a ton of, of issues that I could have helped her with and that she could have helped me with. But we actually literally never talked about it. And I had seen her twice a month for three years. So I think we do need to talk about it more. We need to reduce and remove the shame around it. The people that have normalized it, the people who feel helpless and hopeless because they have this condition and they feel like I did, like something is wrong with me and I don't know what it is. And I can't believe, I do believe that there is an answer. I can't believe it's not easily found and readily available. I said to the universe, like, hey, when I figure it out, I'm going to tell the world. Like, this is my, I have a lot of spiritual missions. This is one of them. And that's what I've been doing. Talking shit. I like it. You're like the spiritual gangster of poop. My pleasure. (laughs) Well, this is such fascinating stuff. I can't wait to dig into your your book. I mean, I think I know a few people who I'm going to give it to or get as a gift. Talking stuffer. Yeah, great stocking stuffer. Wonderful Valentine's Day gift. It's so romantic. I think it's super romantic. Um, well, we will be very happy to share all of these resources. Where can people find the book? They can find it where all fine books are sold, okay, including good. Amazon, um, Kindle. By the way, the woman who, the actor who read the uh, Audible book um, also read for the new vice president's book. So I felt very fancy. Wow. Um, yeah, very fancy. That was like my one degree separation. Thank you. So, so the uh, the Audible is incredible. It's fantastic. I don't always like people's voices on Audible books, but she did an amazing job. And I think it's you know periodically already on sale on Amazon. Uh, a couple bucks off, it's twenty bucks. And I've seen it for eighteen. Uh, but honestly, after I've spent thousands and thousands of dollars on figuring this out, buying the book, and I. I would say this even if I didn't write it for 20 bucks is like one of the best investments you can make, even if it keeps you from buying a wrong supplement or getting the right one for a change. You know, I've spent more on, a, you know, a bottle of vitamin C that was crappy than on the book. And it really packs tons of tons of information that's very easy to read. I've really worked on that. And also you get 40 recipes in the back that are actually really good. Nice. And it's cheaper than having your gallbladder removed. So (laughs) take it all. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Siobhan. This has really been very uh, informative and fascinating. And we wish you all the best of luck. Thank you so much. Right back at you. Be well, everybody. Don't give up hope. Thanks for listening to HTW. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and make sure and rate us on iTunes. You can even give us five whole stars if you think we deserve it. If you have ideas for guests or topics, you can call our 1-800 number. Yes, we have a 1-800 number at 800-674-1839 or holler at us on social at HTW Podcast. You can also head to our website at htwpodcast.com for more episode info and check out our Daily Blend blog to see what we're drinking.